And welcome to Next Reads, a podcast where we read the first chapter of a young adult or middle grade book to help you figure out what to read next. This podcast might contain language or situations some readers might find offensive or unsettling. The North Liberty Library does not necessarily endorse any author's views, but it does support the freedom of speech and the freedom to read. I'm your host, Kayla, the Youth and Teen Services Librarian at the North Liberty Library. My pronouns are she and her. Welcome, listeners. Happy beginning of November. I can't believe this year is almost over. Today, we're going to be reading the first chapter of Green Glass House by Kate Milford. All of her books are middle grade and take place in the same world and can also be read as standalone, which I think is so interesting how she's created this entire world. The Green Glass House was published in 2014, and it's a three-book series with six other books that take place in the world. The summary of this book is as follows. It's wintertime at Green Glass House. The creaky smugglers inn is always quiet during this season, and Milo, the innkeeper's adopted son, plans to spend his holidays relaxing. But on the first icy night of vacation, out of nowhere, the guest bell rings, then rings again, and again. Soon, Milo's home is bursting with odd, secretive guests, each one bearing a strange story that is somehow connected to the rambling old house. As objects go missing and tempers flare, Milo and Medi, the cook's daughter, must decipher clues and untangle the web of deepening mysteries to discover the truth about Green Glass House and themselves. Ooh. So this middle grade book is a mystery with bits of element and steampunk. It's delightful and engaging with a twist. It takes place in winter. Please ignore that, Iowa. Please don't send us winter early. But it's a great book on adoption during National Adoption Awareness Month. Some content warning is minor alcohol and drug use. And without further ado, let's get started. Chapter 1. The Smuggler's End There is a right way to do things and a wrong way if you're going to run a hotel in a smuggler's town. You shouldn't make it a habit to ask too many questions, for one thing, and you probably shouldn't be in it for the money. Smugglers are always going to be flush with cash as soon as they find a buyer for the eight cartons of fountain pen cartridges that write in illegal shades of green, but they never have any money today. You should, if you're going to run a smuggler's hotel, get a big account book and assume that whatever you write in it, the reality is you're going to get paid in fountain pen cartridges. If you're lucky, you could just as easily get paid with something even more useless. Milo Pine did not run a smuggler's hotel, but his parents did. It was an inn, actually, a huge ramshackled manor house that looked as if it had been cobbled together from discarded pieces of a dozen mismatched mansions collected from a dozen different cities. It was called Green Glass House, and it sat on the side of a hill overlooking an inlet of harbors, a little district built half on the shore and half on the piers that jutted out into the river Skidwark. Like the teeth of a comb, it was a long climb up to the inn from the waterfront by foot, or an only slightly shorter trip by the cable railway that led from the inn's private dock up the steep slope of Wildforber Hill. And of course, the inn wasn't only for smugglers, but that was who turned up most often. So that was how Milo thought of it. 
Milo had lived at Greenglass House ever since he'd been adopted by Nora and Ben Pine when he was a baby. It had always been home, and he was used to the bizarre folks who passed through the inn, some of them coming back every season like extended family who showed up to pinch your cheeks at holidays and then disappear again. After 12 years, he was even getting pretty good at predicting who was going to show up when. Smugglers were like bugs or vegetables. They had their seasons, which was why it was so weird when the huge old bell on the porch, the one that was connected to the winch that drove the cable, that in turn hauled the car up its tracks, started ringing. The old iron bell's tone changed with the seasons too, and with the time of day. This evening, the first of winter vacation, was cold and brittle, and the snow had just begun to fall. Today, therefore, the bell itself had a brittle tone. It had a sound like a gulp of frigid air. Milo looked up from the coffee table, where he was working on a math problem. He liked getting his homework out of the way right off the bat, so he could enjoy the holidays without thinking about school. He glanced at his mother, who was sprawled across the rag rug in front of the big stone fireplace reading. Someone's coming up? He asked incredulously. Miss Pine got to her feet, tucked her book under her arm, patted across the foyer, and peered out the window by the door. Someone wants to. We better go start the winch. But we never have guests the first week of vacation, Milo protested. He felt a vague unease start to rise in his stomach and tried to swallow it down. Vacation couldn't possibly get spoiled so quickly, could it? He'd only stepped off the launch that buried the Quayside kids to and from school a few hours ago. Well, not often we don't, Miss Pine said as she laced up her boots, but that's not because we have a rule about it. It's just because that's the way it usually turns out. But it's vacation. His mother shrugged and held out his coat. Come on, kiddo, be a gentleman. Don't send your mom out into the cold alone. Ah, oh, the all-powerful gentleman card. Still grumbling, Milo got to his feet, quietly whispering, vacation, 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 as he slouched across to join her. He had just about finished his homework. That was supposed to be the end of responsibility for a while. The bell rang again. Milo gave in to his frustration and stopped in the middle of the foyer with one boot on and gave a single furious yell with his hands clenched at his sides. Mrs. Pine waited with arms folded until he was finished. Got that out of your system? She asked gently. Milo scowled. I know this isn't the usual routine, his mother added, and I know you don't like it when things don't happen the way you expect. She bent to hunt in the catch-all basket beside the door for a flashlight. But look, being surprised isn't always a bad thing. The fact that it sounded logical didn't change the way Milo felt, of course, but he nodded and finished getting dressed for the cold. He followed his mother out onto the porch and across the lawn to a break in the dark wall of bare white birches and blue-green firs that covered the hillside. There, in a pool of deep shadows, the grass gave way to a stone landing. All his life, ever since he was really small, Milo had been very bothered by sudden changes of plan. More than bothered, being surprised made him uneasy at the best of times. Now, tromping across the fresh snow in the bitter cold to haul a stranger up the hill, an unexpected stranger who was going to require him to work when all he really wanted was a quiet week or so with his parents and his house to himself. Well, that made the uneasiness feel uncomfortably like panic.
The flashlight's beam pierced the pool of shadow, which flickered and melted into butter gold. Mrs. Pine had turned on the light in the little pavilion hidden in the trees where the cable railway landed. The railway began a hundred years below at the river. There were other ways to get to the bottom of the gorge, or to get to the top if you were down. There was a steep and winding stair that ran more or less parallel to the railway and led to the same pavilion. There was also a road that snaked away from the inn and around the side of the hill down to the city proper, which was about a 20 minute drive away. But only Milo, his parents, and the inn chef, Mrs. Carraway, ever really used the road. Guests didn't come from the direction of the city. Guests came by river, sometimes in their own boats and sometimes by paying one of the dozens of old tars in the quayside harbors who ferried a person to Greenglass House in their equally aged boats for a few bucks. Given the option of being hauled up the steep hill in an antique conveyance that looked like a demented and oversized bumper car on rails, or climbing 310 steps, Milo had counted, they always chose the former. Inside the stone-floored pavilion were a bench, a shed, and the steel tracks of the railway. Mrs. Pine unlocked the shed, and Milo followed her inside, where the heavy cable that ran between the tracks looped around the giant spindle of the winch. Thanks to a complex mess of gears, once you got the winch going, it did all the work necessary to haul the single car up the slope. But it was old, and the lever tended to stick. Getting it moving was easier with two pairs of hands. Together, Milo and his mother grasped the lever. One, two, three, Milo counted, and as one, they hauled it forward. The cold metal of the gears whined like an old dog, and they started to turn. As Milo and Mrs. Pine waited for the rail car to click and clank its way up to the top of the slope, he wondered what kind of person it was bringing up. Smugglers came in all kinds. And of course, sometimes the inn had guests who were sailors or travelers and not smugglers at all. But not very often, and almost never in winter, when the skid rack and all of its hidden inlets were so often frozen. While Milo was thinking, winding strings of glittering white firefly-sized lights came to life, outlining the pavilion and trailing off down the hill along the railing of the stairs. His mother straightened up from where she had just plugged them in. So what do you think? An elf on the lamb from the North Pole? A popgun runner? Eggnog bootlegger? She asked. Best guess wins a brownie sundae. Loser makes it. What are those flower bulbs Grandma always sends you at Christmas that you love? Paper whites? Yeah, it's the guy with a cargo of those, and stockings, green ones with pink stripes. A low whine joined the creaking of the cable around the big spindle in the shed. You could tell where the rail car was by how the sounds it made changed. Milo pictured the misshapen old iron lamppost the car would be passing right about now. Green and pink stockings? Yeah, he probably knows it was a bad idea, but now he's stuck with them. He was forced to take the cargo on, no, tricked into it, and now if he can't move it, he's ruined. He's already trying to figure out how to convince people to switch from baskets to striped stockings for Easter. Milo leaned over the pavilion railing and peered through the thickening snow falling amongst the birches and icing the pine branches, searching for the first glimpse of the car and its passenger. It was still out of view, but from the vibration of the rails, he knew it was being hauled up the steepest part of the slope now. He's got meetings set up with people this week too, 
magazine writers, some weird TV star, trying to see if he can make green and pink stripes a big fashion thing next year. And a sock puppet company. He leaned over the railing again, just far enough out that a few flakes of snow managed to make it past the roof onto his eyelashes. There it was, the blue metal nose of the rail car with its silver racing stripes, painted a few years back by Milo and his father, along with its name, while Forber Whirlwind onted the sides. And then, a moment later, its passenger, a lanky man in a felt hat and a plain black coat. Milo could just make out a pair of oversized glasses with huge tortoiseshell rims on his nose. He wilted. The stranger looked disappointingly like somebody's grandfather, maybe even a bit like a schoolteacher. I don't know, Miss Pine remarked, as if she'd read Milo's mind. I could kind of believe that guy would take a chance on green and pink stripes. She ruffled his hair. Come on, kiddo. Put on your welcome face. I hate the welcome face, Milo mumbled, but he straightened up and tried to look cheerful as the whirlwind made its final ascent to the pavilion. Up close, the stranger looked even more boring. Plain hat, plain coat, plain face, plain blue suitcase tucked in the boot of the car. Beneath the glasses, though, his eyes were bright and sharp as they flickered from Mrs. Pine to Milo and back. Milo felt himself stiffen. It always started this way. Whenever the Pines met someone new, you could just about see the person's thoughts. One of these things is not like the others. This stranger was hiding it better than most, for sure. There was no change in his expression, but that didn't mean he wasn't thinking it too. How did a Chinese kid wind up in Nagspeak with that lady for a mom? Obviously adopted. The car came to a jerking stop at last, nearly sending the unexpected passenger's face straight into the Wild Forbers Whirlwind's padded dashboard. Hi! Milo's mother beamed as the man clambered out of the car and brushed the accumulated snow from his shoulders. Welcome to Greenglass House. I'm Nora Pine. This is my son, Milo. Thank you, the stranger said, his voice just as boring as the rest of him. My name is Vinge. They carry Vinge. Well, Milo thought sourly, he had an interesting name at least. I'll get your suitcase for you, Mr. Vinge. Oh, that's all right. Mr. Vinge said quickly as Milo reached for it. Let me carry that. It's quite heavy. He grasped the handle and pulled. It must have been heavy. Mr. Vinge had to put a foot up on the side of the car and push off for leverage, which was when Milo's mom gave him a significant glance. Uncomprehending, Milo took another look at the stranger. Then he spotted it. One garishly striped sock, visible for just a moment, before Mr. Vinge stumbled backward with his suitcase. If anything, the orange and purple combination was even weirder than Milo's imaginary green and pink. Looks like I maybe owe you a brownie sundae, Mrs. Pine whispered, then louder. This way, Mr. Vinge, let's get you out of the snow. Milo's father was waiting when they reached the porch. Hey there, he said, reaching out to shake Mr. Vinge's hand and take his suitcase with the other. Ben Pine, rough night for travel, huh? Oh, it's not so bad, Mr. Vinge replied as he stepped inside and shucked off his coat. You got in just in time, Milo's dad went on. Weather report says we might see seven or eight inches of snow tonight. Daycare Vinge smiled. It was a vague smile, a quick smile, but it was there just for a moment, like he was pleased about getting snowed in, basically alone, in a remote lodge in a strange part of town. You don't say. Milo thought the smile was weird, but then again, the guy did have a weird name, and he was wearing weird socks.
Maybe he was an oddball after all. I put some coffee and hot chocolate on, Mr. Pine said, as he led Mr. Venge through the dining room to the stairs. Let me show you to your room, then we'll be glad to send something up, or you can warm yourself by the fire down here. How long do you think you'll be staying? Mrs. Pine called after him. Mr. Venge paused, one foot on the bottom step. I suppose that depends. Do you need to know right now? Nope. You're only guest at the moment. Mr. Venge nodded. Then I guess I'll let you know. Milo followed his father and their guest up the staircase. The inn had five main floors, the living room, dining room, and kitchen. All of them big open rooms that flowed from one to the next were all on the first floor. The Pines living space was on the second. The guest rooms took up the third, fourth, and fifth floors. The staircase that connected them was wide with carved banisters on both sides. On each floor, there was a landing and a turn so that the stair doubled back on itself. Each landing had a huge stained glass window. Mr. Pine led Mr. Vinge to the third floor where the doors to the four guest rooms stood open. Your pick, Mr. Vinge, any preference? Their guest wandered down the hall, peering into each room as he passed. He paused at the end where the door to the old dumbwaiter was, then turned back to Milo and his father. Except Milo had the impression that Mr. Vinge wasn't exactly looking at them, but past them. Milo turned and saw only the stained glass window in the snowy night beyond, tinged in shades of pale, pale greens, celery and celadon, and tones like old bottle glass. This one will be fine, Mr. Vinge said after a moment, nodding at the room to his left. Sounds good, Mr. Pine set the blue suitcase just inside the door. Want us to send up a hot drink? Before Mr. Vinge could answer, the brittle peal of the railway bell rang out again. Milo stared at his father, shocked. Another one, he demanded, before he could stop himself. Then he clapped his hand over his mouth, sure that it had to have sounded horribly rude. I'm so sorry, Mr. Pine was already saying to the guest, shooting dagger eyes at Milo. But Mr. Binge didn't appear to have noticed Milo's faux pas. He looked just as shocked as Milo felt. Is that, is that the bell I rang? He asked in a strange voice. It sure is, Milo's father said. Sounds like we have another guest. He turned to head back downstairs, flicking Milo on his left ear as he went. Not hard enough to be painful, but just enough to let him know that even if Mr. Vinge had missed Milo's rudeness, his father hadn't. Shall we send up coffee or hot chocolate, something to snack on? Mr. Vinge frowned, then shook his head. No thanks. I'll come down in a few minutes. I confess. I'm curious to see who else is traveling tonight. Milo's father took the stairs two at a time and caught his wife just as she was about to go back out into the snow. We got it, we got it, he said. At any other time, Milo might have felt annoyed at being volunteered, never mind that if one guest threatened to spoil his vacation, two spoiled it for sure. But now, the sheer improbability of two separate guests showing up at this time of year made him more curious than upset. Not only that De Carey Vinge had been shocked when the bell rang, on one hand, he was right to be shocked that another guest was on the way. On the other hand, how could he possibly have known the inn was usually deserted this time of year? Unless, Milo thought as he pulled on his boots, Mr. Vinge was here because he figured he'd have the place to himself. That was the moment Milo first started thinking maybe there was something odd going on. But then his father opened the door and a knife stroke of windy night cut into the foyer. Milo zipped up his coat and stumbled out into the cold after his dad, trying to walk so that his steps matched the footprints Mr. Pine left in the accumulating snow. They had to send Wild Forber Whirlwind 
back down the hill. Milo's mother had reasonably assumed it had made its last upward trip for a while. What do you figure, Mr. Pine asked as they watched the blue car disappear over the slope. I gotta tell you, and don't tell your mom, I was really looking forward to a few weeks off. I'm not complaining, I'm just saying. I thought I was off duty for a while. I know, Milo exploded. I already did my homework and everything. What's the deal with Mr. Vinge? I didn't get around to asking what he does or what brought him here. Did you? Milo shook his head. He got some pretty crazy socks on, that's all I know. His father nodded seriously. That was one of the many great things about Milo's dad. He always took whatever you said seriously. Milo didn't have to explain why it seemed meaningful that a guy who appeared to be so boring and normal wore such bizarre socks. His dad would get it. The engine that drove the cable jerked to a halt. The whirlwind had reached the bottom of the slope. A moment later, the bell rang again to signal the passenger was aboard and ready to begin the trip upward. Mr. Pine disappeared into the shed for a moment to throw the lever. Milo and his father leaned on the railing side by side in silence, staring through the trees and waiting for the first flash of blue. That was another great thing about Milo's dad. You could hang out with him and say nothing and still feel like you spent time together. Milo's mom wasn't good at that. Oh, she always had interesting things to say and they had fun conversations every time they talked, but his dad was good at quiet. The snow fell, trying to blanket trees and ground at night with silence, while the winch and the cable and the rails and the car made their familiar mechanical noises, as if they were having a conversation while they brought up the new guest. And then, at last, there was the wild forber whirlwind, and inside it, hunched under a vivid blue umbrella, topped with snow, was a lady. As the rail car passed under one of the old iron lampposts, the light falling through the umbrella seemed to turn her hair blue too. She looked pretty young to Milo, or younger than his parents anyway. She smiled and waved as the whirlwind approached, and Milo found himself smiling and waving back. The car came to a lurching stop, and the woman swung her umbrella over to one side, knocking off the snow and closing it up. Her hair stayed blue, a darker shade than the metallic cobalt of the rail car, but blue nonetheless. Hi, she said, her voice bright. Sorry to drag you out in the snow. No problem, Mr. Pine said, offering a hand to help her out. It's what we're here for. I'm Ben Pine, and this is my son, Milo. Georgiana Moselle. Georgie, the blue-haired girl said. Thanks. Can I carry your bag for you? Milo asked. She nodded, pleased, and pointed to a carpet bag in the boot of the car. Sure thing. Thanks, Milo. Milo halted out and started back through the trees to the inn. Before Mr. Pine followed, he paused to send the rail car back down the hill, muttering, just in case. Inside, there were hot drinks waiting. Milo could smell cider simmering on the stove the second he opened the door. Mr. Vinge was waiting, too. As Mrs. Pine came into the foyer and introduced herself, he peered around the side of one of the big chairs in the living room, gave Georgie a curious look, then disappeared back into the depths of the chair. Let's get you a room first, then there's coffee, tea, hot chocolate, and cider, Mrs. Pine said as their second guest stepped out of the, her green rubber boots. Ben, what room did you put Mr. Vinge in? Georgie stopped dead in the act of pulling up one of her woolen socks and gave Mrs. Pine the oddest look Milo had ever seen. It was as if her face was divided in half. The bottom part was all innocent smile, but the top half was wide-eyed and unmistakable disbelief. You have another guest? Mr. Vinge leaned around his chair again, smiling blandly behind his oversized glasses. Day, Carrie Vinge. Just arrived myself. Georgie Moselle, said the young lady with the blue hair. 
The odd expression flickered on her face like she really didn't want it there anymore, but knew it would look weird if she stopped smiling right now. Neither she nor Mr. Vinge made any effort to shake hands. They just stared at each other as if each were trying to figure out something about the other. Milo glanced over to see if his parents had noticed this bit of awkwardness, but somehow they seemed to have missed it. Mr. Vinge is in the 3E, Mr. Pine said to his wife, busy with his own coat and boots. You don't mind showing Miss Moselle up? Glad to. Milo, you want to bring that bag? Sure. Milo watched the two guests continue to size each other up. Then Georgie turned away abruptly and followed Mrs. Pine toward the stairs. Milo trailed after. Third floor okay? His mother asked. Hardly seems worth it to make you hike up any higher. Not when there's only two of you. Oh, I don't know, Georgie said brightly. How often does a girl get a whole floor to herself? Might be fun. Fun? Why on earth would anyone want to walk up three flights if she didn't have to? Also, Milo knew from experience, having camped out in every room at some point or another, that it was pretty creepy being the only person on the floor. The inn made noises. Floorboards creaked, old window panes rattled, hinges groaned. But of course, his mother was not about to tell a guest she couldn't hike up an extra flight of stairs if she wanted to. So they kept on going up to the fourth floor. While the stained glass window on the third floor was done in shades of pale green, the one here was mostly blue, cobalt and robin's egg and navy and powder and turquoise with a few bits of pieces here and there that seemed, with the dark sky behind it, to match the guest's hair precisely. Georgie Moselle beamed at it. Look at that. Obviously I belong here. Mrs. Pine waved an arm. Any room you like then. I forgot to ask, how long do you think you'll be staying? Not sure. A week, maybe? Two? After a quick look inside each, Georgie chose the room at the far end. Milo followed her to 4W and set the carpet bag on the folding luggage rack just inside the door. Or at least that's what he meant to do. Instead, he dropped the bag into thin air and it fell three feet or so to the floor with a thud. There was no mistaking the crunch of something breaking inside. Georgie was kneeling next to the bag before Milo had even decided whether to apologize or scream. I'm so sorry, he babbled, staring from the bag to the luggage rack, which for some explicable reason stood to the right of the door rather than to the left, where it should have been. Every room with a W had a door that opened inward and to the right, so the luggage rack was always on the left. It's fine, Georgie was saying, don't worry about it. But something broke, Milo protested. Georgie was busy throwing clothes and toiletries that appeared to have been shoved randomly into the bag onto the floor in search of whatever had broken. Milo stared in horror as the pile grew. Jeans, pajamas, a jar of face cream, underwear. I'll, I'll get a towel or something, he said helplessly. A book with a bent cover, a water-stained journal with loose pages escaping to flutter across the room, a plastic zipper bag of makeup and lipsticks, and there it was. Georgie lifted dripping pieces of broken pink faceted glass. The smell hit Milo a fraction of a second later. Alcohol and something spicy, flowery. He'd broken a bottle of perfume. Oh my God, Mrs. Pine exclaimed from the hallway. Oh, I'm so sorry. She gagged involuntarily and ran down the hall. A moment later, she returned with a waste bin from one of the other rooms. Throw it in here. We'll replace it, of course. I'm so sorry. I'll take anything that needs washing and do it up right away. Georgie sighed and dropped the glass carefully in the bin. It's not a big deal. Please don't trouble yourself about it. I don't know why I shoved the bottle in the bottom of the bag like that anyway. She gathered up her clothes in her arms and dumped them on the yellow knitted blanket on the bed and began sorting them into piles. Milo's mother gave him a sharp questioning look. 
He paused in the act of picking up the rest of Georgie's belongings. The luggage racks on the wrong side, he protested, jabbing an accusatory finger at the offending piece of furniture. They're always opposite the way the door opens. Who moved it? Milo. Mrs. Pine held out the waste bin expectantly. He sighed and deposited Georgie's things on the desk, which fortunately was right where it was supposed to be. Then he took the bin and escaped down the hall. He got all the way to the utility closet on the second floor, where he emptied the bin of its flowery, vile-smelling, eye-burning contents. When he realized he still had Georgie Moselle's book under one arm. Great. Well, he'd have to face her again sooner or later. Milo sighed and tried not to dwell too much on how the luggage rack was not being where it was supposed to be, on top of vacation not happening the way it was supposed to happen, made it seem kind of like the world was trying to drive him crazy. He started back up the stairs, which was when the bell rang for a third time. Milo turned abruptly and sprinted down the staircase to the main floor, past a staring Mr. Vinge, narrowly avoiding plowing into both his father and the silver coffee pot he was holding. I'll get it, he shrieked at the top of his lungs. There were two of them this time. It was hard to tell who was at least happy about that fact. The guests uncomfortably sharing the rail car bench as they got coated little by little with snow, or the wild forber whirlwind itself, which was definitely not meant to carry so much weight and was squealing abnormally as it approached the platform. It wasn't that the guests themselves were exceptionally heavy, the boot of the car was stuffed full of so much stuff that the pile of it was actually taller than the smaller of the car's passengers. It had to have been packed in there by a master because Milo couldn't rightly see how it hadn't all spilled and tumbled straight down to the bottom of a steep incline. There were suitcases, briefcases, garment bags, something that looked like a telescope case. Guests number three and four were scrambling to get out of the car before it had even come to a stop. They made Milo think right away of characters from a nursery rhyme, something out of Mother Goose or Aunt Lucy's counterpane book. On a dark and rainy night, side by side, Mr. Up and Mr. Down had to share a ride. And much like Mr. Up and Mr. Down in the rhyme, these two looked like they could be at each other's throats if they shared that ride even a minute longer. The man Milo thought of as Mr. Down was short and dark-haired and looked like an angry schoolteacher. The other one, if Milo was honest about it, was probably too angular to really stand up properly for Mr. Up. Also, she was a woman, but she looked like an angry schoolteacher too, white-haired and haughty. Why did everyone look like schoolteachers when he was supposed to be on vacation? Nonetheless, Milo raised a hand in greeting, regarding the two newcomers cautiously as they disembarked. They both looked about ready to snap. Welcome to Mr. Down pulled something from the car and the entire mass came undone. Baggage, most of it expensive-looking mauve brocade luggage, spilled down, bouncing across the platform and clunking onto the steel rails. Mrs. Up, who had been about to come around to where Milo stood, froze for a second. Her face went still, then it got red, then purple, then a shade something between gray and blue. Then she started yelling. Mr. Downs straightened to his full diminutive height, his face already turning pink, and then he started yelling too. They continued bawling at each other, louder and louder, standing amid the ruins of the luggage tower. Milo wasn't even sure they were shouting in English. If they were, they didn't seem to be bothering to use real words. Excuse me, he said tentatively. The shouting went on as if he weren't there. Excuse me, he said again louder. Then, excuse me. Without pause, the two of them whirled on Milo and directed their yelling at him. He tried to listen, 
Then he tried to interrupt. Finally, he did what his mother did whenever Milo went on what she called a tear and couldn't be calmed down. He clasped his hands behind his back and made a face as if he were paying really close attention to whatever incomprehensible things these two were saying and waited. Amazingly, it worked. Little by little, Mr. Down and Mrs. Up ran out of steam. As the torrent of angry words subsided, Milo realized the whole argument seemed to be a matter of whose luggage had been taking up too much space in the boot. At last, they stood there, silently on either side of the rail car, he with his arms folded across his chest, and she with her arms balled into fists at her sides. Milo smiled, a big welcoming smile, and pointed to the path that just led up to the inn. Right this way, he said, as if he hadn't just had to wait out a storm of screeching. Come right on up. They each shot one last crabby look at the other. Then Mrs. Up gave a noise like a growl and turned to the mess of gear strewn across the pavilion floor. She picked out an armful of mauve carry-on bags and strung them across her shoulders until she had mostly disappeared under them. Young man, could I trouble you to bring my suitcase and garment bag? Milo nodded and she made a face that was pretty close to a smile, then stamped out of the shelter, wincing with each step as her patent leather heels sank into the snow. Mr. Down waited with his arms still folded until she was out of earshot, then gave a giant displeased sigh. I was under the impression that this would be a quiet sort of place at this time of year, he said, looking at Milo as if he personally were responsible for giving out wrong information. Milo shrugged. You and me both, I was supposed to be on vacation. Ends that way. Can I help you with those? No, thank you. I'll manage. The short fellow gave another sigh and collected the rest of the gear piece by piece. Then, looking like a pack animal, he started down the path too. Milo walked once around the pavilion to make sure there were no forgotten bags or cases hidden in corners or lying on the rails before following the two combatants toward the inn. He slung Mrs. Up's garment bag over his shoulder by its hook and grasped the handle of her rolling suitcase. Then, just at the edge of the woods where the path reached the lawn, he paused and listened. There was a sound behind him coming from the wooded hill, but not from the railway. This was a hollow sound, not a mechanical one. Even muffled by the snow, it was familiar, though Milo couldn't quite believe he was hearing it. Someone was coming up the stairs, and from the pace of the footfalls, that someone was coming up fast, practically sprinting up the last dozen steps. Milo jogged back to the edge of the platform and peered down into the snow swirling through the trees. By the uneven glow from the occasional lamppost and the twisted string of fairy lights, he saw that a dark figure was, in fact, approaching, and that figure was not merely sprinting up the stairs, he or she was taking them, two at a time, which apart from being a fairly dangerous thing to do on snow-slick steps, seemed as though it ought to be physically impossible. There were, after all, more than 300 of them. It was an exhausting climb under the best of circumstances. He waited for the person to slow down. It didn't happen. The newcomer jumped up the last three steps to land at the top, looking fresh as a daisy, a snow-covered daisy in a black knit cap carrying a truly gigantic backpack on its shoulders and wearing pink lip gloss. Hey there, she said, gritting up Milo with only a little flush on her cheeks. Didn't mean to startle you, looking for the green glass house. Supposed to be somewhere hereabouts? Yeah, Milo stared down at the incline, still trying to figure out how she wasn't red-faced and dying of exhaustion. Yeah, right this way, er, I'm Milo. My folks run the inn. Clemens O. Candler, she replied, holding out a hand with gray painted fingertips. My friends call me Clem. Inside the inn, chaos had taken over. 
Mr. Down and Mrs. Up were still yelling at each other. Only now, they were doing so in the middle of the living room. He gestured angrily with a telescope case, held as if it were a sword. She with an embroidered bag, clutched to her chest like a shield. Both of them with their wet shoes dripping slush onto the rag rug. Mr. Vin stood in the corner, holding his mug defensively in front of his chest. Georgie Moselle sat on the hearth with her elbows on her knees and her eyebrows drawn up high on her forehead. It seemed they couldn't possibly go up any higher, but when Clem Candler trailed inside after Milo, they did. Yes, Milo thought grouchily, another one. Get used to it. If I have to, you have to. Mr. Pine was trying unsuccessfully to get in between the two shrieking newcomers, and Milo's mother was pacing at the bar between the dining room and the kitchen with the phone to her ear. Clem Candler hung up her cloak and arranged her shoes next to Mr. Vinge's without taking her eyes off the yelling duo in the next room. She took off her cap and shook out a head full of short red hair. Pretty lively crowd, she muttered. Meanwhile, Mr. Pine had had enough. Milo saw it coming and braced himself. His father could yell when he wanted to. All right, Mr. Pine bellowed. His voice ricocheted off every surface in the room. Somewhere in the dining room, a glass fell from its shell and shattered on the hardwood floor. That's enough from both of you. Mr. Down and Mrs. Up fell grudgingly silent. That's better. Behave yourself like adults, or I may just discover we're all booked up, Mr. Pine continued, fixing them one by one with a severe glare. Do I make myself clear? He waited for a reluctant nod from each, then gestured toward the wooden stand in the foyer, where the guest register lay open. You first, madam. Your name? Mrs. Eglantine Hereward. And yours, sir? Dr. Wilbur Gowervine. And you, miss? Clemence Candler. And how long is everyone planning to stay? The three newcomers hesitated. Just like the first two, none of them seemed to have made up his or her mind. Mr. Pine sighed. No matter. Milo, you want to do the honors? Okay. Milo kicked off his boots, picked up Eglantine Herward's suitcase and garment bag again, and led the way up the stairs. Clem followed silently, but cheerily, in her stocking feet. Mrs. Hereward gave a grandiose sniff and trailed after them. Wilbur Gowervine made a big production of collecting his gear. Then he followed as well, the long telescope's case, bouncing off the banister with each step. Milo paused on the second landing under the pale green window, and he and Clem waited for the other two to catch up. This is the first floor of the guest rooms, he said. When Mrs. Hereward and Dr. Gowervine reached them, you can pick whichever you like, except 3E. That one's occupied, the one with the door closed. The three guests looked at one another. Clem waved a hand and gave the other two a dazzling smile. You go ahead. Mrs. Hereward gave her a curt little nod and stalked down the hallway. While she was examining the open room at the far end, Dr. Gowervine carried his belongings into the nearest open room and dumped them on the floor. I'll take this one, he called. While the tall old lady made a big production of deciding between the two remaining rooms, Clem leaned over and spoke quietly. Say, Milo, I don't suppose there are any upstairs rooms that are available, are there? Well, sure, lots. Why? He supposed it wasn't really any of his business, but Clem didn't seem bothered. I need my exercise, she explained. I get a little stir-crazy if I don't get it. And what with the snow, I can't imagine I'm going to be putting on any runs outside anytime soon. Would it be a pain in the neck for your mom and dad if I took one on another floor? Not at all. In fact, I don't think there's anyone on five. Two flights up, 5W has a really cool window with painted glass, if you like that kind of thing. Perfect. 
Down the hall, Mrs. Hereward peered out of the door of three in next to Mr. Vringe's room. Young man, can I have the rest of my things brought up? Sure, ma'am. Milo turned back to Clem, but she had already disappeared up the staircase. And that is the end of chapter one. I hope you found that chapter intriguing enough to check out. And if not, there's always another book just waiting to be discovered. Those characters all had such interesting names and I'm excited to learn more about them in general. What do you think's the mysteries happening? Do you think they're all smugglers? Is Milo going to get any semblance of a vacation? I can't wait to find out what happens next. If you are interested in this book, it is available as a physical book and digital, both as an e-book and an e-audiobook. If you need any help with your library card or accessing our online Libby, feel free to let us know. Please check the show notes for some read-alikes if you're into mysteries and books on adoption. And thank you for listening. Join me next time for another Next Reads.